Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with the reigning NL Cy Young Award winner Trevor Bauer to talk about free agency, his Cy Young Award winning year, and to reflect on how baseball handled playing the game on the field during a worldwide pandemic. And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Trevor Bauer, welcome to the Boom Podcast, man, and uh, congratulations on winning the Cy Young. Very cool. Thank you. Thank you for having me, and thank you for the congrats on the Cy Young. Uh, it was a very proud moment for me. Trev, where are you going to sign, man? Come on. Let me know. Oh, I don't know. I might sign the Mexican <laughs> League, Dominican, uh, might go over to MPB. I, I want to play in Japan at some point. We'll see. We'll see. Got some options. I'll tell you, it's uh, there's. I watch you start to finish this year. Yeah, pretty cool. What a great year you put together. And I'm looking at the landscape out there. And, you know, people have asked me, "Where's, where's, you know, Bowers the top pitcher out there on the market?" Uh, I see a lot of pot- uh, potential suitors. What, what are you looking for to to spend your next? And, and I don't know what your plan is at all. But what are you looking for in the next team you sign with? What's most important to Trevor Bauer? Yeah, I want to be happy at the end of the day. You know, I love playing baseball, and I want to love playing baseball. There's been times, plenty of times during my career, many years of my career where I haven't been happy playing the game that I love. So uh, that's, you know, the cultural fit, the players, um, you know, uh, a team that embraces the kind of the way I do things, which is definitely different, um, but that's okay with that. Um, somewhere where I can win because losing is miserable. You know, I want to, I want to win. So um, those, are, those are really the most important things. Uh, and then just, being able to push, you know, the, the initiatives that I'm passionate about in baseball forward, like I want to be able to help players. So I want to be in a, in a place where, you know, guys are open to that. Uh, I want to connect with fans and, and help push the game forward. So I want to be in a place where the fan base is, uh, the fan base accepts me, you know, the, the stuff like that. So most guys are like, you know, I want X amount of years, X amount of dollars. I want security. I want to live in a city that's, you know, good for my family or whatever. I guess my, uh, those things are still important to me, but you know, my passions lie slightly uh, in, in slightly different places. Yeah, and you had a one seven three this year. You won the Cy Young. Um, just as as an ex player here, now kind of on the analytical side, and, and just what you know. And I watch, and and I've watched you over the last four or five years. I watched your time in Cleveland. Um, and, and I and I I get my opinions a little different. I, I can put my eyes on a pitcher or put my eyes on a hitter and, and I see a different, I've watched you. And, and if you'd asked me a few years ago, Trevor Bauer, I'd say, you know, he's a really good pitcher. I watched you this year on several, several different of your starts. And I noticed a different, you went in my mind from a really good pitcher to an elite pitcher to me, to one of the best pitchers in the game, one of the best pitchers in the world. Did you see a difference particularly this year? What, what got you to that point to that, to that level? I think I, well, first off, I appreciate that. It, it, it means a lot. Um, and second, I, I, I improved my command a lot. So I was able to execute the things that I was trying to do and the things that I saw in the field. Uh, for a long time, I've, I've seen, I'm pretty good at like reading hitters' body language and understanding where they're at, what they're looking for. I'm pretty good at game planning and 
I have pitches that move a bunch of different ways. So I have the, the weapons to attack those things, but I just couldn't get the ball where I needed to get it uh, enough to be able to execute that plan. And um, I put a huge emphasis on it in the off season. I think I was actually in a way very fortunate that uh, I was able to train, you know, during, during quarantine because I ended up having six, seven, eight months maybe of like uninterrupted development time where I could really make strides in my ability to command the ball. And I chopped my walk rate down. So I was able to execute my, my game plan more effectively, more often. And then there's less people all over the bases for free. You know, people had to get a hit off me to get on a lot more often than, you know, in the past. I, I would think my career best walks per nine was like 3.03 or something. And this year it was right at two. Um, so I was just putting less base runners on and executing my plan better. So I was harder to hit. Uh, and and it, was, it was a, a huge jump in, in my ability to, to put up results on the field. No, I think it's really interesting what you said. And, and, you know, it's kind of a high level of baseball talk and, and not everybody talks it, but I was a real a student uh, of you guys and Intel. I wanted as much Intel in my day as I can as a hitter. I want to know everything about you when I'm facing you. And, and I'm going to know the particulars, what I did off you. What's the last base hit I got off you? What was it? Was it a slider? Where did I hit it? So I'm going to have all this before I formulate my plan. But you just said to me, and this was my worst nightmare as a hitter. You said you read body language of the hitter. That's such an important part. That's high level. I had guys like Greg Maddox would do that to me. Trevor Hoffman would do that to me. Uh, Pedro Martinez would do that. He could read what I was looking for. And it was almost like a little wry smile when you caught me sitting on a pitch. And I knew you caught me because that ups the game. That ups the chess match. And I think it's fascinating because we don't talk about it enough. I think the, the average fan out there just watches the game. But to give this type of insight, I think is really cool. And it is. It's, it's, a cat, it's a cat and mouse. Once I catch you catching me, now, I, now I've got to reverse my plan. And, and that was the funnest part for me. And sometimes if you have an elite catcher, He'll do the same things. He'll give me that look like, oh, you're taking a fastball with the bases loaded down the middle, Booney, huh? I know what you're looking for. So uh, I think yeah. it's really cool when you talk about that. It, it, it's interesting. But location is, some- is awesome, too. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, it's something that's not talked about even in even in baseball circles. right? Like how many – how many conversations have you heard between pitchers where they're talking about like how to read their body language? I haven't heard any, you know, it's just one of those things that like you either kind of learn it experientially or you don't like one of the things I, you know, I listen to Smoltz uh, when he's announcing now, you know, I grew up a, a big Braves fan and I, uh, you know, watched him pitch and all this different stuff. And I got very familiar with it, but you listen to him announce and he's so good at like, Oh, well, he just threw this high fastball and the guy's, uh, you know, susceptible to the, to the breaking ball down now. Or like, oh, don't throw that pitch again. It's going to go a long way. And then someone will hit a home run. Uh, because you can tell that he learned these things. He, can, he has a sense and this feel for the game that, like, it just occurs to him that, oh, this is the right pitch. And he's right. Um, but you don't hear people talking about that. And it's something that I learned early on because someone – at some point someone told me like, Oh, well the hitter was late on this, this pitch and you can see it here. And I'm like, Oh wait, there's a, there's a, there's a theory here. There's a, a way to like formalize this skill and, and learn it. And there's a process to it. And so I, I learned that early on in my career. And then this year I was just, it was the first year that I was really able to, 
to execute it and cut the walks down. I executed pretty well in 2018, but I still walked quite a few people. Um, so this is kind of the culmination of, of all that learning. And I know you grew up in Southern California. Who was your team? You, you just mentioned Smoltz and, and uh, shoot, I still have nightmares about going to Atlanta and going Smoltz, Maddox, Glavin. And uh, yeah. so you mentioned Smoltz. He, he definitely was one of those guys that you had to up your game when, you, when you're going to face him. But who was your guy growing up? Who's the pitcher you look to? Who do you want to kind of pattern your style after? You know, I threw a curveball from a young age, and the best curveball in the game at the time I was coming up for me was Barry Zito. Um, and you know, I'm obviously a huge fan of pitching, so watching Zito, Hudson, and Mulder up there in Oakland, um, I was a huge A's fan. I have uh, I had a hat that was actually signed by Barry one spring training, and I wore it for like eight years, and it was like I, it originally was green and yellow, and now it's kind of like white with a tint of green and a tint of yellow. Um, I love that hat. So I was a huge uh, A's fan because of that pitching staff. I was a huge Braves fan because, you know, growing up, the Braves were always on TV. The TBS is one of the only teams that was, like, kind of broadcast nationally. Uh, growing up in L.A., I had the Dodgers. And I could sometimes get the A's because they were in California and they played a lot of California teams. But uh, mostly watched them during the postseason. But the Braves were always on. And uh, I was a big Braves fan. So it was it was, it was very Zito. Um I enjoyed watching the Braves, but uh, Vito was my guy. And then when Lincecum uh, came into the league, uh, I immediately like flipped. And, and Lincecum was my guy for you know pretty much all the way through college and my early pro career. Uh, your guy, you know, and I had this to a degree as a player. I had a little, you know, I had an edge to me. <laughs> Maybe not as big an edge as you, but you're you're a guy everybody's got an opinion of. You know, kind of polarizing. Where does that come from? What, what do people don't understand about the real Trevor Bauer? Uh, you know, it, I was bullied a lot in high school uh, and grade school. I didn't have, I didn't have a peer group. I didn't have friends. Um, I was ostracized a lot. There was one morning where I'd gotten up at like five thirty to go to the YMCA to do a pool workout and work on baseball and my mechanics and whatever the case is. Got home, took a shower. I'm looking in the mirror as I was drying off. I was like, why don't people like me? I don't understand it. You know, I work hard. I'm a good student. I'm kind. I treat people well, this, that, and the other. And that day I made the decision like, you know what? As long as I can look in the mirror and be okay with myself uh, and feel good about myself and what I've accomplished that day and how I've treated people, et cetera, et cetera, then that's all I care about. I, I'm not going to worry about how other people perceive me because I can't control that. And that's a really freeing moment for me. So I, uh, that's kind of how I, how I operate. Um, you know, the rest of my life, how I've operated since then, uh, in my life in general. So when I do things that are, that are polarizing, people feel a certain way about them, but there's a purpose behind them. You know, I, there's a, there's a goal to it. Um, I, and I feel, I can feel good at the end of the day about, you know, my reasoning for doing it. Now, is the result always what I want? Is the result always positive? No, not, not at all. But the intention behind it, the, the purpose, you know, uh, I feel good about, the, the why behind what I'm doing. And so I just don't, it doesn't bother me anymore when people dislike me, if I do something and they have this opinion about me or that opinion about me, because at the end of the day, I think it's important uh, to feel good about yourself and uh, to believe in yourself and to, and to be proud of the things that you, that you are doing. And that's one of the things that I am really passionate about is passing that knowledge and that uh, I guess being an example for that, 
for young kids uh, who maybe haven't had that moment yet where they really um, discover that self-confidence and that, that belief in themselves. And um, it, it was so freeing for me. I want to see that happen for other kids, you know? Yeah, I do. I do that. And that's an interesting take. You know, I, as a player, I always, I didn't worry about you're going to like me, love me, hate me, whatever, but you're going to respect me from seven to 10 o'clock every night. And uh, yeah, like you said, I think you hit it on the head. You, you got to, at the end of the day, and I, and I teach this to my kids, you got to be looking at them, looking in the mirror and saying, I did everything I could today to help my team win and be a, be a good guy. And I know what I am. If you can do that, uh, yeah, you, you're, you, you pretty much got this thing licked. That's, that's a pretty cool thing to hear. I want to, I want to kind of shift over to, and I heard you and it, it was interesting to me and I had to chew on this for a while being a, you know, I'm 12 years removed from the game and, and now I'm just a, you know, I'm an ex player watching you guys, this current generation. And there was a lot made about, you know, these unwritten rules of baseball and, you know, my first layman take on it was, you know, when we played certain things wouldn't have happened that are happening in today's game. But when I really started to think about it and, and kind of analyze it in my mind, I remember as a player, you know, I'd, I had a dad that played. I had a grandfather that played and they were very opinionated about their era. And I remember grandpa after games. Well, you know, in our day, we wouldn't have done the things. And I used to look at my grandpa and I love him to death. And he was one of my favorite guys. But I'd say, Gramps. It's our game now. So give it a rest with DiMaggio and, and Ted Williams, you know, all that's cool. But, you know, this is now. So when when I I heard a take that you had of I wish you'd have flipped his bat on me. Well, that's pretty unique coming from, you know, my generation. We would have never said that. But when I analyzed, I said these unwritten rules in my generation, this is your generation now. The, the unwritten rules are what you guys, current players, decide they are. And it's my job as an ex-player to look and say, you know, history will tell each generation what it's like. One day you're going to be a father. Your kid might be playing or, or your, your kid's generation. They're going to have their way. And you're not going to agree or disagree with, with everything they do. But... Uh, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I, I just think it's it's pretty unique and it's pretty different on how the, the rules are today. Speak to that a little bit. Yeah, I, I I appreciate that take a lot. Actually, I've never heard someone phrase it in like the unwritten rules of the specific generation. You hear unwritten rules and it's this, this kind of entity, you know, it takes on this, this kind of aura of this this thing that you're either for or against. But it's really it's really an interesting perspective to to see that like these unwritten rules have been changing, you know they do change as new generations of players come in and they value different things and uh, that the rules of the game morph and change and stuff like that. So that's a really f- refreshing perspective, and I appreciate you sharing that with me. It, it kind of opens my eyes in a lot of ways uh, to a different way of thinking about this. Uh, I do think that you know today's game is. Um, the emphasis on being in, in entertainment, I think, is so much higher nowadays in sports uh, because of social media, because of um, the way that you know the fan bases consume the games. It's the, the attention spans are shorter. You know, gone are the days of uh, of people sitting in the front yard on their porch, maybe listening to a baseball game on the radio for three hours. That's just you know, the, the life is is so fast nowadays, and people have so much going on that. They're mobile. They're on the run. They're listening to, uh, you know, 
podcasts uh, you know, as they're driving to, to work. They're watching little clips on YouTube and social media that, when they have a little free time here and there. Uh, so the emphasis, I think, on being in, you know, understanding that baseball is part of the entertainment industry, that what goes with that is like you have to entertain the people where the people are. Um, and these bat flip moments, these things, um, you know, going against the unwritten rules in a way, like is kind of what sparks some controversy and then it gets shared everywhere on social media. It gets delivered to the fans where the fans are. People are talking about baseball uh, and that's good for the sport. It's good for all of us as players because the more people that are interested in baseball, the more people watch, the better the industry does and the more players get paid. Um, so when I said that about, I wish he would have flipped his bat on me is, is I think it was in reference to Anderson. You know, last year I had a, uh, Tim had his bat flip thing that went crazy and um, there was a bunch of controversy around it. I and mean, we played him about a week after that. And I tweeted at him before the game. I was like, Hey man, if you, you know, uh, I don't need your bat flipping on me today, you know, go easy on me or something like something along those lines. And he said, no, nah, man, you know, my numbers aren't good against you. If I get you, I'm going to have to bat flip it, you know? And so he, a year later, he finally hit a homer off me and he didn't bat flip it. And so I was kind of just joking with him and holding him accountable for that. Um, because it's a, it's a moment that I knew that by me holding him accountable for it, it would get shared. It would get, it would bring more attention to the game. It would be entertaining for the fans, but it was also kind of a message of like, no, this is okay. You know, I'm, I'm a pitcher. I'm not going to throw at you next time. If you bat flip me, I'm, I'm cool with it. Like do your thing, you know, be, be entertaining, be, have a personality and, and, and run with it. And, uh, I think that's important for our game to continue growing and continue connecting with the, the young fans because, you know, they're the next, they're the next generation of players and they're the, you know, next generation of, of, of the fans for the next 40, 50, 60, 70 years, you know? Yeah. And I think that's a, that's a great point on, you know, the emphasis on growing the game. This is, this is all of our games, you know, guys, my age, guys that came before me, the current guys and the guys to come. Uh, and, and we got to keep growing the game. I, I have a completely dis- different perspective than I did when I was 25 years old. I remember back then they'd, uh, hey, Booney, we're going to mic you up today for the game. I mean, the last I, I looked at him like they had two heads, like you're going to mic me up and listen to me on the field. How dare you? I'm playing the game. Now being a little bit over and looking at it, what a great thing for the game, for that average fan sitting on his couch can have in-game takes from their favorite players <laughs> As much as it might be a little bit of a burden on us because we're trying to do a job, think how great that is to get the manager's take in the seventh seventh inning of game five. That's the last thing he wants to be doing is is doing an interview. But because he does that, it grows the game. And, and that's what it's about. It is entertainment. It is the reason we're able to or you guys are now to make the money you make because this game's getting bigger. You know, get the greatest players in the world from every corner of this of this world and put him in the big leagues. That's going to be the ultimate. And, and I'm with you on that. Anything that is a positive that grows the game is entertaining. I, I think is really cool. And my, my, my feelings and, and my perspective has changed as I get a little bit older and, and have experience, you know, it's, a, it's about having fun. And if this generation has their fun a different way than we did, well, so be it. And who am I as an ex-player to tell you how to play? You know, time will tell how the, how each generation bores out. But, but I think that's, that's a great take. I want to get to it's your, one of the things your that, it's one of the things that makes baseball so interesting though, is the history of it. Right. And you can look back at different eras. You have the live ball era, the dead ball era, you got the steroid era, you got, 
uh, we're probably in the midst, this is probably going to be known as the analytics era. Um, people love that about baseball more so than any other sport. It has that, you know, and that's part of the tapestry of the game. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, okay. And I know we talked about, and you, you touched on a little bit, your, your approach to the game is very technical. It, it, you use a lot of data. It's almost scientific. And that's obviously worked for you. I wanted to get your feelings on, do you think it can be too technical for the masses? You know what I'm saying? I mean, let's break it down to the minor league, just professional players. Is too much data for the masses, uh, can it be a deterrent? Can it be a bad thing? Let me give you an example. Uh, a double A hitter is is being, you know, he's got his exit velocity and he's got his swing speed. If he's in a slump, is he looking at those numbers going, oh, my swing speed's down. My exit velocity isn't what it should be. Can that be a deterrent? Can that be a negative thing? Obviously, in your case, it works. That's how you that's how you approach your career. But do you think it could be a net? What are the pros and the cons to, to having too much data, too much technology? Now, it 100% can be a deterrent uh, if not utilized properly. Uh, and I think that in the beginning, right, you know, right now we're kind of in the beginning stages of this, this analytical uh, revolution in, in a way. And I don't think people understand well enough how to utilize the data. So they just kind of, here's all the data and it gets overwhelming and that can be a negative. The ideal scenario as I see it is a coach that I, I call them interpreters uh, because they understand data. They understand nerd speak, front office speak, but they also understand player talk and, and the game and um, they have experience with it. They can communicate in ways that players can understand. The last thing you want to do is have a player, the baseball player, that that's what he's, that's what he spends his life doing and learning. And now you have to, you know, now you're asking him to be an academic in a way or to be um, into research and learn how to use this data. You're, you're detracting from his natural ability to, to play the game, the skills that he's developed over his lifetime. So well, I mentioned these interpreters. That, that That's the future. That's the arms race right now in baseball, as I see it, is finding ex-players um, who are current, who they're, they're young enough to still understand the game and um, – the experience of the game and what it takes to get through a season and how to handle the mental side of it. They can speak player. That's one language, but they also are um, savvy enough with the tech to understand how uh, the front office is communicating this information. So the front office gives all this data, the coach is the firewall and they look at it and they say, okay, you know, here's an attack plan for the player, but I'm going to phrase it in a way of like, Oh, just get your hand on the side of the ball a little bit more or like, Hey, how you been sleeping? Like, you know, maybe try to get an extra hour of sleep or something like that. Knowing all the data behind it and using that to make a decision that's a, a better decision for the player, but presenting it in a way where the player doesn't think anything of it. They're like, oh, yeah, okay, I, I see him. And I get my hand around the ball more, it'll break more. And, like, it's very simple for them. Uh, and I see that as being the best-case scenario. A coach um, or a team uh, that looks at the data that makes a plan, that gives it a very simple plan to the player in baseball terms the player can understand. And I think that's the, that eliminates the downside of being like having too much data and kind of getting taken off of the rhythm of just being a baseball player. 2020, you know, obviously, you know, not just for, for athletics, but for everything, our life, <laughs> this has been a wild year. You were pretty outspoken about Manfred 
to be honest with you, I'm right there. I, I don't think a lot of things, a lot of things could have been, hand, could have been handled a lot differently, especially from the, the, the way it was, I don't know, the way it was delivered uh, to the fans. But now that we got through the 60 game schedule and, and the Dodgers are world champs, how did it go? It was okay. Um, I, it was not having fans at the stadium sucked. I, I, I think that that's the biggest, the annoyance of like going through the testing and the protocols and whatever as players, like, look, this is our job. Like this, this is what it takes to get the, to get the job done this year. Like this is what we have to do. So that, that stuff I don't mind, but you know, just not having fans at the stadium. And I, I fully understand why, obviously, but that just, it's such a, it's such a huge part of the game that you don't really realize because it's just always there, you know, and it's always, you just get used to it. And then, uh, but the, the, the rhythm of the game, the energy, the momentum swings, uh, especially in playoff baseball, like the playoffs did not feel like playoffs this year. Like it, at no point did it feel like the moment did not feel any bigger than regular season, you know, because there's no fans, there's no energy. You're not getting the introductions on the line that the, the crowds going nuts you know you got hundreds and thousands of people outside the stadium as you show up they're banging on the bus on the road like all these different things um so that that sucked i i hope that we were able to have full capacity and have fans back in the stadium next year but uh overall i think it went you know it went it went well the, the most important thing was that there was baseball this year that we didn't miss a full season of baseball and you know we got we got some in um we were able to get through the playoffs we were able to get through the regular season there's obviously bumps and hurdles and stuff like that but i think it was it was good for the industry that there was baseball this year i think it, you know having a season without baseball would have been devastating because you know you're staring down a bargaining cycle after this coming season so you were looking at the possibility of having no season in 2020 uh potentially altered season in 2021 but definitely a contentious season in 2021 and then potentially a strike shortened or a lockout shortened or no season in 2022 if we can't figure out the bargaining stuff so that would have been death for the industry that that was like the the doomsday scenario and um was it perfect this year no but we avoided at least for for another year like the doomsday scenario so i thought that was good yeah and it's it's a that's a Pretty astute take because I was a rep in '94 uh, for the Reds. I was going to ask you about that. Yes, and it's it's absolutely amazing, and I and I and I strongly encourage every player out there listening: uh, get informed, educate yourself on the process, go to those meetings, know what's happening, because it's uh, it's it's very eye opening. Those behind the scenes negotiations. I think it was was. Uh, imperative that you guys played this year. I think the fact that you got, you got an agreement, you went out there. I thought it was a success from a fan sitting at home watching. I think the, the, uh, the broadcast did as good a job as they could. They piped in the, the sound. I thought it was a little funny at the beginning, but it worked for me. I thought the postseason was great. Uh, the way they could set it up, all, all points being taken. I think, uh, 
the way they had to set up the consecutive games without the day off in between uh, favored the elite teams, which it should favor. I, I didn't want a mediocre team to get through that postseason, but the way they had it set up, there were too many landmines. You had to be a great team and a deep team, especially pitching wise, to get to the to get to that final dance. You know, and, and Tampa did. They were deep in that pitching category. Dodgers just one upped them in the World Series. But I think all things considered, I'm with you. I, I think you guys did as great a job as you could have with, with all the circumstances. And, and I thought it was a successful season. Um, yeah, I, I agree. I, I, I liked the postseason format for those reasons that you laid out. It, I don't know if the casual fan understands the, the significance of those things, um, but the players do. When we were staring down a five-game series or a seven-game series with no days off, you're like, oh, boy. <laughs> yeah, uh, deeper pitching's going to win here. <laughs> So it adds a a really nice dynamic to it. And I thought the interest too of having more teams in the postseason uh, and the short, like the short series, the the three game series up front, like it it adds a certain level of excitement. And and what do you think about, you know, I, I, there were 16 teams in the postseason, probably the easiest year in the history of baseball to get to the postseason. I thought that was great because of the 60, because of the 60 game schedule and what it does getting back to that entertainment value uh, it, it kept a lot more cities, a lot more excited, a lot longer. And that's good for the game. I mean, you, the last weekend of the season, you had like seven or eight teams that were still in contention. That depending on the outcome of that of that weekend series, they would be in or out. I mean, you had the Phillies, you had the um, the Giants, the Brewers, the Reds. Like there, there was uh, there was a couple other ones as well. Um, that like now, now you have. 12 teams that are that are in already and you have four spots that are available but eight teams competing for it you got 20 teams that are still in it right at the end of the season and i think one of the biggest things that we see in our industry right now is like the tanking thing you know well we're going to be bad for five years in draft picks and like rebuild and all that and i don't think that's good for the competitive integrity of the game you know i think players want to play against the best teams and if there's more incentive for teams to attempt to win or if there's more teams that feel like they're close enough that they could get in uh, and getting in is, is valuable enough for the team. Like that just, that raises the level of play uh, for, for a longer period during the regular season. I, that, that is good. Yeah. All right. We, we got, uh, we got USC. Brett Boone is an alumni of USC and I know, Mr. Bauer is a UCLA guy. We got we got a big matchup next weekend. What what, what are we thinking here? You guys are three and two. We're three and zero. Oh. What do you got? Well, if recent history tells us anything, uh, <laughs> USC is going to win. Uh, I hate to say it, it pains me. Um, during my time at UCLA, I witnessed uh, you know a fifty to a fifty to nothing loss and a, a twenty eight to seven loss in which the last play of the game was. Pete Carroll faking a knee and, you know, throwing the ball up uh, to a receiver that wasn't even covered and just embarrassing us. So I have some, I'm, I'm scarred a little bit. I have some, some memories of, of the UCLA USC matchup, but uh, I, I'd have to lean in the USC direction right now. Unfortunately. Wow. An honest take. I love it. I love it. All right. Well, Trevor, uh, we do this at the end of every Boone podcast. We get a question from the fans and the voice of the podcast. Dan Levy's going to ask that. Dan, you there? Oh, I'm here. What's going on, boys? 
Can't wait. What do you got for us? I'm really excited, Dan. I'm, right. sure, he, I'm sure Trevor's on, on eggshells right now. I was going to say, I would love to throw you some real mean curveballs, but this one I think is going to be a pretty easy one for you. This one comes from Mark Carmen, and the question is this. If there wasn't a rain delay in Game 7 of the 2016 World Series, who do you think wins that game? We win that game 100%. Uh, the history of you know, the, the curse, um, the energy that was in the stadium after Roger hit the game-tying home run, the way our team functioned that year. Uh, is, you know, we were kind of the, the underdog the entire year, and we were a very momentum-based team. Like one person would do something, it would spark a fire under us, and we'd take off. Um, it's still, it's yeah, it. it that moment, just talking about it, like the the hair on my head is standing up. I'm getting the chills just thinking about Roger hitting that home run and the the how loud and energized that stadium was. How our team was like we were back in it. We you know it was a story. That game was the story of our season, right? We got down early, we fought our way back, we tied it up, we you know got down again, and we were fighting back and had a chance, you know, in the bottom of the of that inning to, to come back. We had, you know, we, we scored a run and we were threatening and, um, you know, just came up a little bit short, but if not for the rain delay, it's the energy of our team and the energy of the stadium. There's, and on the other side, the curse, you know, with the Cubs, the doubt, like, are we actually cursed? You know, <laughs> um, that we win that game for sure. I got to tell you, cause I've been in Chicago for so long. I thought that curse was all on here. And I thought for sure that rain delay made it that the Cubs were going to lose. So I was watching that game yep. from Chicago going, the rain is coming. It's all over for the Cubs. It's Cleveland's year. So I just to let you know, everybody in Chicago pretty much thought it was going your way. <laughs> yeah, it was a, it was a great series. Uh, I, was, you know, I dreamed of playing the World Series my entire life and to have that experience and to be part of one of the better World Series that, that I can remember, just the drama all the way down to the, the last moment. Um, it was such a special experience and one that I'm extremely blessed to have had in my baseball career. Fantastic. Well, Trevor Bauer, we want to thank you so much for coming on today's show. We really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's been a blast. Always fun talking baseball. Thanks Trevor. And remember folks, if you want to go ahead and follow him, he's pretty good social media follow. It's at the Bauer outage on Twitter. So thank you so much Trevor for coming on. Good luck in the free agency. Thanks Trevor. Mailbag. All right, and now we move on to a new segment called The Mailbag with the Boone. A lot of people are always sending in emails. They want to pick the brain of Brett Boone. They hear him on the podcast. They know of his career, and they have a lot of questions for you, Boone. You ready to roll? You ready to open up that bag? Let's do it. Brett, in your career from J.P. Paul, from J.P. John Paul, that is, who had the nastiest stuff you've ever faced? Nastiest stuff. You know, I, I've, I've been asked that question a lot. Who's your, who's the toughest? Man, there were so many. It, it, the easiest question for me is Maddox, Smoltz, Glavin were the toughest three in a row. I have nightmares to this day about it. But the nastiest stuff for about a three or four year period, Pedro Martinez. Pedro. Fantastic. Fantastic. I uh, I always thought he did pretty well. He didn't hurt the uh, poor old guy, Don Zimmer, when he uh, ran out there. That was nice. I enjoyed that. <laughs> Have you ever had a coach try to lunge at you before or no? No. They know better. <laughs> Brett, this one comes from Mark. 
who had the best and worst visiting clubhouses in all of baseball that you visited? Worst Cleveland. Oh, best. There were a lot, you know, I, I, and, and that it's, it's all up to interpretation, but Anaheim was great. Uh, I, I really enjoyed Anaheim. Who's number one. Give me one. Oh, let me go through it now. Texas. Uh, all right. Pound for pound. I got to tell you, I really thought you were going to say the Cubs were the worst. I've heard a lot of bad things about that old. No, no. The best year in and year out. Texas. The Rangers had the best. What made them the best? I don't know. It just, I can't explain it. Overall feeling, start to finish. When I got there, the service, the clubbies, they're the best. Anaheim's a close second. What was the worst thing about Cleveland? What's the one thing that you're like, this place is the worst? Could never find the clubby. <laughs> Food wasn't good. Uh, and, and things have changed a lot. It, just in the last 10, 15 years. I mean, these guys have caterers, and and it's a whole new level of, of dining. But uh, the good clubbies in my day uh, put out a really good spread. We're there, you know, Great service. You know, if you needed something, if, if your family was in town and needed reservations or a car, the best guys were there. You know, here, we'll get this set up. We'll get this set up. Uh, so so that's that's what makes it really uh, a unique experience. Were you a tipper of those guys? I know I've, I've seen oh, athletes yeah. tip those oh, guys. Yeah. The, what, the what's the good a, good, what's yeah, a tip, tip from an well. athlete? Yeah. What's a tip? What's a typical tip for to leave somebody if they're well? I, I can only speak for my for my time. Um, it, it depended on ten year rookies. You know, there was a minimum tip I think of forty dollars a day. Uh, the veteran guys, if if you know, high tip was if you go in there for three days, three hundred bucks. Oh wow, hundred bucks a day. Now you know, it could be two hundred bucks a day, three hundred bucks a day. Wow. Inflation's amazing. All right. Last and last but not least, Brett, how did you pick up your walk? How did you pick your walk-up music? And who has the best walk-up music in baseball? That's from David. (laughs) The Butterfly. Oh, what was mine? The Butterfly. Come, my lady. Yeah. Opening to the Boone podcast. I don't have... I, I don't, there's no rhyme or reason. Uh, I didn't even know at the time. Crazy Train, I believe, was was my walk-up artist. No idea about Crazy Train. I heard the song and it's just, you know, you, you get a something in your head and it's just kind of catchy and you like it and it feels right. You know, my favorite artists of all time were ACDC and, and mm. I didn't even think to pick one of their songs. It was just I heard that butterfly. It was relevant at the time where we first started walk up songs. And I don't know. I just I liked it. It felt right. And ever since then, when I hear that, uh, that's why we chose it for the Boone podcast. It's just something that makes me go, all right, let's go. Game on. So there's there's no rhyme or reason. Just that it's as as, uh, simple as that. And who has the best walk of music in all of baseball? Uh, I don't know current because I'm not in the stadium hearing the hearing the uh, walk up songs. But for my generation, there, there's two. There's one that's heads and tails, and that was uh, Trevor Hoffman coming in for Hell's Bells <laughs> to close awesome. out a game. And number two it is uh, Mar- Mariano Rivera, Enter Sandman, when he would come in. Those were the two real entertainment value. Uh, 
just even when you're the opponent, you were getting pumped up. Usually it didn't end well when those guys were coming in, but but uh, from an entertainment value, it was it was pretty cool. The one I liked the most, my personal one, would be the Bobby Jenks because he came out to uh, Here Comes the Boom. And I remember when that song came out, that was a humongous one. So I remember that one getting. Yeah. But yes, there's nothing better than Mariano Rivera's Ender Sandman, especially that guy, the greatest of all yeah. time. Yeah. All right. Well, we want to thank everybody for tuning in to this very special Boone podcast. We want to thank Trevor Bauer for jumping on with us. For all those who want to get in touch with the show, please do so. You can actually follow Brett Boone at the Boone 29. He's on all over social media, Facebook, Instagram, and especially Twitter. Ask questions away. Ask the Boone. Ask him away. We will feature your questions. If we like what we got and we empty this mailbox once again. We will feature your questions. So send it to at the boon 29. We will gather up those questions and it'll be on the next episode of the boom podcast for Brett Boone. My name is Dan Levy. This has been the boom podcast. We'll talk to you guys soon. See ya.